0: support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.
1: From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, should we be worried about the grid? how a tough winter could mean blackouts again in Texas.
2: What I am most worried about, David, is we do still have not done anything on energy efficiency. And that just remains this massive unmet need.
1: What does the SB4, show me your papers law, mean for the children of the undocumented in Texas?
3: So what concerns me most about the bill is how broad it is and its potential to impact immigrant kids in our state in in ways that we have never even really imagined.
1: And how a school board meeting in Texas exposes the greed behind the outrage over school books. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Texans are again wondering if the electric grid is going to hold up during the winter. In early October, officials at the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which oversees the state's main power grid, announced that there was an almost 17 percent chance of a blackout during this winter. To learn more, I spoke with Doug Lewin, the author of the Texas Energy and Power Newsletter and president of Stoic Energy.
2: Well, first of all, that 17 percent is under conditions like winter storm Elliott, like we experienced last December, just before Christmas in 2022. That is not the Probability if we had a winter storm Yuri like condition, uh, which of course the the percentage chance would be much higher. Um, and in my view, to be very clear, not ERCOT's view. They don't they haven't published any numbers on that. But in my view, um, it would be very close to 100% likelihood that there would be outages if we had a winter storm Yuri like situation. I don't think that they would last as long or affect as many people uh, as they did in 2021 because there have been some improvements made and we can talk about those but um, I think there's very likely to be outages so yeah I mean people can take that to mean wh- wh- whatever they like I think it means we should be prepared I think it means we should you know hope and pray we don't have conditions like Yuri. and of course there's not a real high probability we will but it's but it's certainly not zero either so I think you know people should be taking precautions to, to make sure that they're ready. Um, you know, so many, the problem, in, part of the problem in 2021 was so many people were not prepared, uh, myself included. I don't think we imagined such a long outage could actually take place. Um, now, obviously, we all know that. So uh, being prepared is very important.
1: Recently, ERCOT canceled a program that was supposed to develop power reserves for the winter uh, it had to cancel it because there weren't any participants in this program. Explain that to me.
2: Yeah, well, I think to call it a program is probably overstating it. I mean, this was, uh, I, I would describe it more as like a Hail Mary pass, right? At the end of a football game, throwing the ball down the field, hoping somebody might come up with a miraculous play. Like They, they put this out there in early October and said, you know, we're going to need 3,000 megawatts to show up within a couple of months. And they were asking for either uh, what are called decommissioned power plants. It basically just means that in many cases they've been taken apart. Um, they, you know, they would have to somehow find parts and the people to put those parts in place in, in the space of only a couple of months. Um, and they had a little over 2,000 megawatts of generation on a list. Not one of those megawatts uh, offered in at any price. They didn't put a price cap on it. So theoretically somebody could have said, well, I'll bring a power plant back for you know hundreds of millions of dollars. Nobody even bothered to do that because it was basically impossible. I don't know why they did this. I think this has been a distraction. Uh, I think there was very little chance of it actually working and this is not like Monday morning quarterbacking. I said it at the time and I'm certainly not the only one. Uh, I think everybody in the you know follows this stuff or is in the market kind of looked at that, scratched their heads. Um, so I just want to be clear it's not like, Anybody really thought that was going to be there. This was just sort of like a Hail Mary they uh you know put out there really kind of last minute. So I don't think that that changes the probabilities of of anything bad or not bad happening this winter.
1: Well, during the summertime, of course we had the incredible heat all across the state of Texas and we were getting these warnings uh, telling us to reduce uh, how much electricity were we using during peak hours. We can gathered from that that all of the power generation that was out there was being used in, in Texas. And now we've had a couple of months of, uh, you know, things have, have calmed down. And have they been able to use this downtime to do all the repairs? Because I can imagine uh, they really put a lot of stress and strain on, on the grid and the power generators during that time.
2: Yes, I mean the short answer is yes and that's that happens every year. They use um you know power plant uh owners and managers use this time what is what is often called shoulder season. These sort of uh you know whether it's March and April, uh October November when the heat is not extreme and the cold is not extreme um to try to do plant maintenance as comes up often in public utility commission and Ercot meetings these days. That maintenance window, unfortunately, is being squeezed. Really, they don't say this in the meetings, but as a consequence of climate change, because the extreme weather season is getting so much longer in duration, that shortens the amount of time that these very complicated machines, that sometimes need parts that have supply chain problems, they need specialized labor, which there often aren't enough crews. You know, um, it's it's very difficult for these folks to to get the maintenance done, and what are um, you know effectively sort of shrinking maintenance season. So while, while we hope that that has happened, and there certainly are inspections that ERCOT is doing uh, to make sure that they're ready for winter, um, it's, it's a bit of a dicey proposition as to whether or not they're actually able to do the maintenance they need.
1: Well, not everyone can go down for maintenance at the same time. Otherwise, shoulder season would be a, a really grim time. So how do they figure out, figure out how, how who, go, who gets to go offline to do maintenance and who has to stay online?
2: There is a system they do have to, you know, report and in some cases ask, and they can be told, no, you can't. And, and, uh, you know, ERCOT does try to work with them to to schedule it, but they're not all down at the same time. But out of a thermal fleet of, what are we at, like 70, 75,000 megawatts or something like that, of thermal, which is coal, gas, nuclear, um, during these maintenance windows, it is not uncommon for there to be 30,000 megawatts out at any given time. So... Um, while they do cycle them, there's a very, very large chunk off. And as a matter of fact, that puts us at risk of outages during those shoulder seasons. And um, not many people realize this, but we've actually haven't had a summer outage. We came very close September 6th of this year, but there has never been an outage in the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. I'm not sure there were before that, but, it, but in a, you know, a generation or two, there haven't been summer outages. There were, there were outages in April of 2006. And it was largely because of this problem, unexpected heat with a lot of thermal outages uh, for for maintenance. So that is a risk that that, uh, ERCOT and generators have to manage.
1: Well, people are looking at battery storage as uh, new technology that can help us during these peak demand times. Uh, Yet there are some new laws and regulations in place that uh, battery storage folks are saying is keeping them from rising to this challenge and opportunity? is What can you tell us about that?
2: Well, yeah. So there, there is a proposed regulation at ERCOT that would make it very difficult for battery storage to participate in backup reserve markets. Um, and there, were, there were lengthy discussions today at the Public Utility Commission about that. They did not approve that regulation. So in the past, the commission would not have had to approve it, but because of changes made at the legislature in this recent session, um, now all ERCOT actions must be approved by the PUC. They did not approve it. today; They, they, they didn't deny it either. Um, but really, um, you know, I, we, we, could, we could get into the details, but I think the main point here is uh, we know, and ERCOT itself says, that on September 6, 2,181 megawatts of storage made a huge difference. When we were very close to being at the edge of rolling outages, uh, and if ERCOT is taking actions to, this is not what ERCOT says, now I'm speaking, if ERCOT is taking actions to actually put up barriers, and this is something one of the commissioners, Commissioner Glatzelty was saying today, if they put up barriers to storage, then we're losing potentially what is a really valuable, dispatchable resource that wants to come onto our system. And it can solve a multitude of problems. While it doesn't solve the URI problem, it's not a multi-day resource, the vast majority of problems on the grid are an hour or two, or an outlier three or four hours, and storage can solve most of those. So it really is perplexing why they'd be doing this, and, and hopefully from the direction that they, um, you know, from the from what they have hopefully heard loud and clear from the commission today, They'll back off this stance and really try to, to try to you know make it as easy as possible for storage to to get onto the grid. I don't know why they'd be doing otherwise. It doesn't make sense to me.
1: Well, well, the view from the bar stool at the dark dark end of the tavern. I mean, it looks like <laughs> you know people don't want you know competition and having reliable battery storage that would make renewable power uh, make more sense than uh, if you were a fossil fuel power generator. Why would you want that?
0: Yeah,
2: it's, it, it's certainly possible. I mean, those, those kinds of, uh, you know, calculus do sort of come into these uh, discussions. But I just, you know, it's, it's, it's ERCOT itself that is really just going to the mat for this regulation. And as a matter of fact, Commissioner Glosselty brought that up during the meeting as well. when they said, well, we remanded this a few months ago. And Commissioner Glosselty said, you only did that when you were forced to. Like, they, they have really been pushing full speed ahead for this. And that's what I don't understand. I understand why a thermal generator or somebody that owns a gas plant wouldn't want more storage because, like you say, it's more competition. I don't understand why the grid operator wouldn't want a highly dispatchable, fast-acting resource on its grid. It, that doesn't make sense to me. I guess you could, you know, there's lots of ways you could go, and, and listeners can imagine all sorts of reasons why. I won't get into speculating like that, but just on the surface, uh, you would think a grid operator would want every single megawatt of this they could possibly get their hands on.
1: How are you feeling about things right now, now that we're getting into the winter, winter?
2: Um, you know, I am not, I I, I don't think, um, you know, in any situation sort of like, you know, excessive worry and, and, and stress and all of that, anxiety is, is, is ever super useful. I, I, so, I mean, I'm uh, and, and uh, again, like the probabilities of a winter storm Yuri, you know, aren't super high in any given year, um, all of that might be cold comfort to folks. I, what, what I am most worried about, David, is we do still have not done anything on energy efficiency. And that just remains this massive unmet need um, where, you know, it's really inefficient heat uh, in poorly insulated homes, you know, adds up to somewhere around, um, a third of the peak demand in the winter time, and it's a very known problem we could have very targeted uh programs and policies and incentives that could solve that for a fraction of what so many of the other solutions including building new gas plants um, would cost and yet nearly three years later nothing's been done there and and it's not just like that's a nice to have when you ask how am i feeling like that is the number one reason i'm nervous because the, the demand is just out of control. The, the grid operator, Hercot, still doesn't understand that demand. They keep missing, just last winter, they missed their demand forecast by over 20% because they still don't understand this massive load that is resistance heat, backup heating in homes, 3.5 million Texas homes, that add up to like 25 or 30 gigawatts. Again, about a third of the of the total load. So that, to me, is a prerequisite. I don't think we will ever have a very reliable grid in the wintertime until we have addressed that problem, and it remains completely unaddressed at this point.
1: Doug Lewin is the author of the Texas Energy and Power newsletter and the president of Stoic Energy. Last month, during the most recent special legislative session, Governor Greg Abbott asked for and got a state law that would allow Texas law enforcement to arrest people for being in the state illegally. It's now sitting on Abbott's desk and he hasn't signed it yet. It's called sb4 but that name doesn't communicate much which is why some people are calling it the texas show me your papers law opponents are saying it will lead to racial profiling by police some are wondering if it's constitutional because similar laws in other border states have been struck down by the supreme court but this high court could be more agreeable to abbott linda cortado is the president of the children's immigration network children at risk she says there will be alarming consequences for texas children when SB-4 becomes law in March?
3: Well, I think you start on a good theme already, um, which is the name, because a lot of persons have been labeling this as the the border enforcement bill. Um, and I think that's very deceptive because the the focus may have been the border, but really the aim are our immigrant communities all across the state. Um, so, you know, there were opportunities to limit... Um, the bill, right? It, it could have been limited to a certain mile radius um, around the border. It could have been limited to just recent arrivals, um, but, but no such um, safeguards were put in place. So, what concerns me most about the bill is how broad it is and its potential to impact immigrant kids in our state in, in ways that we have never even really imagined. Um, so it's broad and expansive, and there's a lot of unknowns.
1: This gives the state government broad ability to detain and deport people who are in the country without authorization. Many people who are like that in, in Texas are, are hardworking, a good contributing members of our society, and they have kids who are American citizens. What happens to those kids? If, say, there is now a state of Texas DPS raid at a construction site or a hotel or a restaurant where people are working and they deport people and they have children who are at home or in school, what happens to those kids?
3: We don't know. And, And that's what's so concerning to us is that there are no safeguards. There are no protocols that are put in place there's not even the most basic training on on trauma for children and, and encountering children in, in traumatic events like these. Um, you know, it broke my heart hearing a partner today from the Rio Grande Valley who is encouraging parents to do um, notarized documents that would state what would happen to their children should they be detained, should they be expelled immediately. Um, so the level of thoughtfulness that immigrant parents are having to put into place now as they consider the future of their kids without them in this country is just so heartbreaking to to put my mind around
1: someone might say well that's why we have a foster care system foster care system in texas is broken Uh, that's a federal judge who has made that determination children come out of the foster care system in worse shape than when they go into it. Um, so that, that doesn't seem like a solution.
3: No, it's not. And I think a great example to show you all of the ways that this could impact children is, I, I was just speaking with a service provider today who supports victims of domestic violence. And so she said, consider a mother undocumented, driving her child to school. Uh, she stopped, She's arrested. And that child then goes back to the violent home. Um, so some of us think the home might be the best place, but it's very possible that an undocumented parent is actually trying to find a safer solution. Um, but because of SB four, that that reality is is long gone. Um,
1: so, one fact, you have in your presentations in San Antonio. Twenty-two point five percent of children are from mixed-status families with at least one foreign-born parent. That so, what does that? How does that leap out to you? What does that tell? What should I make of that?
3: What was so alarming and impressive for me during this entire process is listening to elected reps in Austin and really realizing that they have no understanding of what a mixed-status family is. Um, And the harm that could happen if one um, undocumented parent who may be the head of household is deported and their only crime was entering this country without inspection. So that leaves kids in such a precarious situation when when these laws are executed to its fullest extent and their family is broken, not just broken, but they may be a middle income family and now they're living in poverty. Um, Now a child may be having to enter the foster care system, as you mentioned. Um, So it's not just traumatic. It it creates poorer families in our states when so many immigrant parents are working so hard to improve their, their children's well-being.
1: So this was passed in the recent special session of the legislature. Governor Abbott called for this specific bill to be passed. It's on his desk. He is yet to sign it. It's um, seems like he normally he would have signed it already. I don't, do you think that these observations from folks like yourself saying, you know, you really don't want this bill because this could cause a lot more problems for you than you're ready for? Do you think that's um, he's it's giving him second thoughts?
3: Well, I don't think I'm not that hopeful about my role in this, but. You know, there's also voices from the county governments along the border that are just dumbfounded. This is such a large, unfunded mandate, and and they don't know how they could possibly execute such laws. I mean, they would need to build a new state jail with 400 new beds, is one estimate, from the El Paso County. Um, so it's, it's compounds, right? It, it goes beyond... Um, advocating for human dignity. And it also goes down to the basics of how are you going to fund this? You know, how are sheriffs going to even know, um, how are they going to deter their sheriffs from fighting crime to separating a family in in a Volkswagen off the freeway? Um, So there's just so many layers to this that, that, and there's just so many unknowns because this this bill was just being pushed out so quickly during the last special session, that where we could have possibly hoped for better safeguards, they, they never were put into place. Um, so what you have is a really bad, unfunded bill with a lot of folks wondering how could we possibly execute this to the fullest extent and not go broke and not break law.
1: Linda Cochado is the director of the Children's Immigration Network, Children at Risk. Last month, during a marathon school board meeting for Conroe ISD, just north of Houston, there was a debate over which library books students should be allowed to read. One 20-year-old woman named Lana Burkhart was given her chance to speak, and she told the board the story that when she was 11 years old, she read a scholastic book that included a kiss. Burkhart said that experience caused her to become eventually addicted to pornography. That night, the Conroe ISD School Board passed a revised controversial library book policy, making the book removal process lengthier. The school district has removed 125 books from its library. But what about Landa Burkhart and her story? Judd Legum of the investigative journalism website Popular Information checked it out.
0: I have been following around the country different efforts to restrict access to books in schools, uh, a lot of it in, in Florida, but also Texas and Tennessee and many other states. And so I got a tip about this woman, Lana Burkhart, who went before the Conroe uh, school board and essentially uh, testified that by reading a scholastic book that sparked in her an addiction to pornography, which she said left her, you know, distraught and at one point suicidal. And the interesting thing about this is what she did not disclose, and and later this video of her talking about her story was promoted uh, on social media, uh, and what she did not disclose is that the people who were promoting this on social media, uh, Brave Books and and Skytree book fairs, uh, were her employers. Uh, she's the public relations manager for those, uh, for for Brave Books. So that I think is is significant, and because it suggests to me that there is more going on here than they're presenting to the public.
1: This whole scene of you know the city of the going to the school board meeting and complaining about books—it's become so common. It's almost a cliche. I mean, it's a, it's a scene in the movie uh, Field of Dreams, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, something that uh, mm-hmm. happens all the time, apparently. But now it's yeah. gotten even even beyond uh, what was portrayed there. A- and, and, we, and And we're at a point where anyone can walk up to the podium and present this story. And it's not fact-checked, and yet it can drive public policy. Is that alarm you? Yes,
0: and that's what interests me about this story. You know, it would have been one thing if she tried this gambit and then she sat down and that was the end of it. I probably wouldn't have written about it. But what happened is after she told her story, the school district uh, took action and essentially uh, restricted uh, a book, not the book that she read, but a book that she says was similar to the one that she read by Scholastic, uh, and restricted it for anyone in eighth grade uh, or or younger, and they're also considering um, removing scholastic book fairs as a result. so these these efforts are having an impact, and that's why I think it's important because there are school boards that are driving policy based off of this.
1: But even further, the the fact that this woman worked for the rival book company. That rival book company promoted this video of her in front of the school district without acknowledging that. They had to know, right?
0: Yes, they, they would have to know. In fact, we know that they knew because I, I didn't get into this in the story itself because uh, I was trying to do it in the most economical way I could. But this is nearby the headquarters of that uh, book company, Brave Books. And in addition to her, there were other member employees, including the founder of Brave Books, who testified at the same hearing. So they clearly were aware that she was doing this because they were there. Isn't that kind of fraud? I I can't say what happened to this woman when she was 11 years old. So I'm not saying this did happen to her or didn't happen to her. But I can say that giving this testimony and encouraging them which she did explicitly to remove all scholastic books from the schools and cancel scholastic book fairs without disclosing that she was working for a rival company is unethical that's that's my view
1: we have these um i don't know if you call them hollywood figures or whatever you know like kirk cameron and how are they involved in all this
0: kirk cameron is published by brave books and he also uh is basically a spokesperson for them. He goes on all sorts of television and, and uh, television shows and podcasts and elsewhere promoting uh, Brave Books. And in fact, uh, Skytree Book Fairs, which is essentially an offshoot of Brave Books, was uh, the story that they tell was that it was essentially conceived when Kirk Cameron went on this elaborate tour of public libraries where he would go into the public library and read from brave books. Uh, and the, the reporting about these events were a lot of times they would not either reserve a room or they would reserve a place that was too small uh, for the crowd that they were gathering. And then they would, of course, get kicked out of the library. And then that was, of course, a way to generate publicity for this tour.
1: This is a highly organized, uh, well-constructed effort to do what?
0: Well, I think part of it is there are certain kinds of books, particularly books with LGBTQ characters. That was one of the books that was restricted. It didn't really have any sexual content, but it did have characters that were LGBTQ. Uh, books that deal with racial issues, um, different kinds of things that that a section of the right and the far right are concerned about. They want all of those books out. And then I think alongside of that, there's a group of people who see this as a business opportunity to get their books in. So you've got Kirk Cameron and Sean Spicer, who's who is the former press secretary for Trump, right wing conspiracy I And they see that as a, as a potential business opportunity as well.
1: Judd Legum is the founder and author of Popular Information, an independent newsletter dedicated to accountability journalism. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. We've got past episodes of Texas Matters on our website at tpr.org. And you can download and subscribe to Texas Matters wherever you get great podcasts And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio.
0: Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.